Hello, friends. Welcome to Ends and Sensibility, the podcast for everyone who loves bold, witty women, awkward, handsome men, and dragons. I'm your host, Casey Meserve. This is our first episode of 2022. I hope wherever you are, you had a great holiday, if you celebrate, and that winter has been kind to you so far. Today's chapter is going to be a short one, so I thought we could spend a little bit of time talking about Jane's family. In previous episodes, we began looking at Jane's family, and you can go back to episodes one and two to hear a little bit about that. And in episode five, we discussed Jane's oldest sibling, her brother James Austin. Today... We're going to dig into the life of Jane's best friend, confidant, and big sister, Cassandra. Cassandra's life story is closely aligned with Jane's. They went to school together, they shared a bedroom, and as their niece, Anna Lafroy, said, if Cassandra's head had been going to be cut off, Jane would have hers cut off too. Cassandra Elizabeth Austin was born January 9th, 1773. She was the fifth child and first daughter of George and Cassandra, and she was named after her mother. Cassie was almost three when the seventh child, Jane, was born, and the baby became her plaything in a house full of boys. Cassie and Jane were inseparable, and when Cassie went to school at age 10, Jane, who was only seven, insisted on going too. The girls, as their father called them, attended Miss Anne Colley's school in Oxford. Biographers say Mr. Austin most likely sent both girls away in order to use their room to board more boys for the school that he ran, and Mrs. Colley was an aunt of theirs by marriage. So in 1784, Mrs. Colley moved her school from Oxford to Southampton. Cassie and Jane went with her. But their time with Mrs. Colley ended abruptly when typhus swept through the school. This is like, it was like a scene right out of uh, Jane Eyre. Mrs. Austin flew to Southampton to rescue the girls, and Jane was actually sick, but she recovered after a few weeks. The next year, Cassie and Jane were sent to another school, the Ladies' Boarding School, aka the Abbey House School. There, they learned French, music, drawing, writing, needlework, and speaking, among many other things that ladies should know. Cassie and Jane left the Abbey House School in 1785 and returned home to Steventon, and apparently they never went back to another school after that. But back home, Cassie continued drawing and painting, and as a teenager at home living with several of her father's students, falling in love with one of the boys was bound to happen. Tom Fowle was the boy who caught her attention. Now, Cassie first met him when she was six or seven, when he first arrived as a student at the school. And he lived with the Austins for about five years, intending on becoming a clergyman like his own father. He attended Oxford to that end, but in 1792, when he was 28, he came back to Steventon for a visit and he took a new interest in the now 20-year-old Cassandra. Well, they ended up becoming engaged, uh, but Tom couldn't afford to marry Cassandra, but he did have some connections. Lord William Craven, who was the first Earl of Craven, was a relative of Tom's mother. 
And upon his and Cassandra's engagement, Lord Craven gave Tom a living. That is a guaranteed income and a home for his lifetime while he served as a clergyman for a local parish. Unfortunately, the living he was given in Wiltshire wasn't valuable enough to support a family, but Craven promised Tom a second living in Shropshire as soon as the current occupant died. Well, the couple were still waiting to be wed in October of 1795 when Lord Craven came to Tom with a new proposal. He was going on an expedition to the West Indies with a British military unit called the Buffs, and he offered Tom a position as his chaplain. Tom accepted, and in January 1796, Tom left for the West Indies. He was supposed to return in May, but he never came back. Just as his family, the Fowles, were expecting him to arrive home, they received word that Tom had died of yellow fever in February, and his body was buried at sea in the Caribbean. The Fowles wrote the news to the Austins, and no one really knows how Cassandra dealt with Tom's death. Jane wrote in a letter that to her family, Cassandra, quote, behaved with a degree of resolution and proprietary, which no common mind could evince in so trying a situation. The only silver lining in this awful news was Tom's will. Tom had created a new will just before leaving for the Caribbean, and he left Cassandra a thousand pounds. Now, this seems like it was a lot, but it's actually more like an annual income from interest of about 35 pounds a year, which was about what a governess would earn. And that would be about 49,000 pounds or so today. Cassandra spent the next few years in Steventon with her parents until 1801, when Mr. Austin, who was now 70, decided to retire from the church and give up the rectory to James and his growing family. Mr. and Mrs. Austin, of course, made the decision to go to Bath while both girls were away from home, and neither one was asked her opinion. So the Austins sold most of their possessions, including Mr. Austin's library, gave the rest to James and Mary, and moved to the Paragon, where Mrs. Austin's brother and his wife, the Lee Perros, lived. They brought Cassandra and Jane, who were now in their mid-twenties and still single, with them. Over the next four years, the Austins moved in and out of houses all around Bath, holidaying in Lyme Regis and visiting their son Edward Knight at his estate at Godmersham Park. But in 1805, Mr. Austin died, and suddenly the women were houseless with very little money. In 1806, they ended up staying with one brother and then the other for months at a time, and then they lived again in Bath for a while before Frank, who was a naval captain, offered them a home with his new wife Mary near Portsmouth. Cassandra, Jane, and their mother lived with Mary, and occasionally Frank, for five years, and they ended up inviting their friend Martha Lloyd, who was also a spinster and had lost her parents, to live with them. Now, this sounds like it's kind of dire straits, you know? They, these women don't have a lot of money. They really don't have a place to call their own. 
Cassie was invited to stay with Edward's family at Godmersham, where Edward and Elizabeth had 10 kids. So obviously they needed some kind of help beyond just their nursemaids. Well, Elizabeth died after giving birth to her 11th child. In 1809, Edward invited his mother, sisters, and Martha to live in a small cottage he owned in Chaunton, which was near Godmersham, where the women would be around to help care for his brood. At Chaunton, Jane finally found the time to revise Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice into their final forms and write new novels. And Cass was her first reader and her greatest supporter. When Jane became ill, Cassandra was her nurse. And in 1817, Cassandra took her to Winchester to see a doctor and was with Jane when she died in July of that year. Now, Cassandra ended up being Jane's literary executrix. And along with their brother Henry, she helped publish Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. She also had hundreds of Jane's letters in her possession, additional notes and stories. And as biographer Claire Tomlin said, Cassandra had many years in which to consider what to do with the papers in her possession. Cassie continued living at Chaunton Cottage with her mother and Martha for many years. Mrs. Austin died in 1827 at either 87 or 88 years old. And in 1828, 63-year-old Martha married Frank, who had been widowed for several years by then. And Cassandra continued living at the cottage alone after Martha married. She still had the money that Tom had left her, and her brothers continued to help support her. So she spent her time sewing and visiting friends and relatives and maintaining a protective hold on Jane's legacy. Now, protective hold, what does that mean? It means that she burned hundreds of Jane's letters to her and possibly other relatives that she deemed to be too private, too inappropriate, or too indiscreet for potential future public or even family consumption. She also cut out large portions of some of the letters she left, according to her niece Caroline. Now, Cassandra lived a long life. Um, she died in March 1845 at 72 while visiting Frank. Most likely, she died of a stroke, and she was buried at Chaunton beside her mother. Jane's letters to Cassandra were saved by their niece Fanny Knight, who left them to her son E.H. Natchbull Hugeson, the first Baron Brayborn, who was a British politician in the 1800s and a writer of fairy tales. And he edited the first collection of Jane's letters in 1884, which contained about two-thirds of Jane's known letters. Now, there are some amazing slices of life in Jane's letters to Cassie and some incredible biographies about Jane that also talk about Cassandra's life. Uh, there are several biographies listed on our bookshelf page on ensinsensibility.com. There is also at least one incredible fictionalized account of Cassie's life. Um, and I really want to do a review of some of those uh, books in, in future episodes. So please let me know if, if you'd like to hear that. For now, let's get on to today's chapter. 
today we're reading chapter 11 of Sense and Sensibility. Last time, we got to know Willoughby after he rescued Marianne, and the two discovered that they had a ton of things in common, especially Willoughby agreeing with Marianne on everything she says. But Willoughby also shows a bit of a bullying side when he starts making fun of Colonel Brandon. And Eleanor thinks that she may not like him, but as always, she is reserving judgment. She does, however, begin connecting with Colonel Brandon and finally notices his crush on Marianne. Chapter 10 also takes us through a series of character comparisons. We have Brandon and Willoughby, Willoughby and Edward, Marianne and Willoughby, and Eleanor and Marianne. Chapter 11 starts with the Dashwood family being busy. Little had Mrs. Dashwood or her daughters imagined when they first came into Devonshire that so many engagements would arise to occupy their time as shortly presented themselves, or that they should have such frequent invitations and such constant visitors as to leave them little leisure for serious employment. Yet such was the case. When Marianne was recovered, the schemes of amusement at home and abroad, which Sir John had been previously forming, were put into execution. The private balls at the park then began, and parties on the water were made and accomplished as often as a showery October would allow. In every meeting of the kind, Willoughby was included, and the ease and familiarity which naturally attended these parties were exactly calculated to give increasing intimacy to his acquaintance with the Dashwoods, to afford him opportunity of witnessing the excellencies of Marianne, of marking his animated admiration of her, and of receiving, in her behavior to himself, the most pointed assurance of her affection. Marianne really only needed a couple of weeks to completely get over her sprained ankle, and now Sir John can put all his party plans into action. And whatever or wherever that party might be, Willoughby is there, and he and Marianne are not subtle about their public displays of affection. So, of course, Marianne, being Marianne, pays attention to no one else when Willoughby is around, and Eleanor has to chastise her for the PDA, but Marianne doesn't care. Eleanor could not be surprised at their attachment. She only wished that it were less openly shown, and once or twice did venture to suggest the propriety of some self-command to Marianne. But Marianne abhorred all concealment where no real disgrace could attend unreserved. And to aim at the restraint of sentiments which were not in themselves illaudable appeared to her not merely an unnecessary effort, but a disgraceful subjection of reason to commonplace and mistaken notions. Willoughby thought the same, and their behavior at all times was an illustration of their opinions. So Marianne pays no attention to anyone else when Willoughby is around, and Eleanor has to put in her two cents, like, yo, Marianne, you need to chill out a little bit. You're not acting appropriately. Relax. When he was present, she had no eyes for anyone else. Everything he did was right. Everything he said was clever. If their evenings at the park were concluded with cards, he cheated himself and all the rest of the party to get her a good hand. If dancing formed the amusement for the night, they were partners for half the time, and when obliged to separate for a couple of dances, 
were careful to stand together and scarcely spoke a word to anybody else. Such conduct made them, of course, most exceedingly laughed at. But ridicule could not shame and seemed hardly to provoke them. Mrs. Dashwood entered into all their feelings with a warmth which left her no inclination for checking this excessive display of them. To her it was but the natural consequence of a strong affection in a young and ardent mind. So not only does Marianne think Eleanor's censure and request for no PDA is ridiculous, she seems to dare her social circle to laugh at her while she looks down at all of them for being prudes. This was the season of happiness to Marianne. Her heart was devoted to Willoughby, and the fond attachment to Norland, which she had brought with her from Sussex, was more likely to be softened than she had thought it possible before by the charms which his society bestowed on her present home. We're going to come back to this paragraph a lot, I think, in the future. So she has fallen hard for this guy, and the attachment that she had to Norland has kind of faded away. It's kind of been overtaken by this handsome, dashing young man who agrees with everything that Marianne says or does. So Marianne is having this whirlwind romance and Willoughby has kind of taken the place of her attachments to Norland that she once had. Remember what Marianne said once in chapter five. She said, dear, dear Norland, as she wandered alone before the house on the last evening of their being there. When shall I cease to regret you? When learn to feel a home elsewhere? Well, it seems like she might have found a home. But Eleanor has not found a home. Eleanor is very homesick. She has no real friends among the women. She's bored with Lady Middleton and Mrs. Jennings. And everyone else has kind of left her behind. Everyone else has made friends. They've become a part of things and moved on. But not Eleanor. So is it ironic that Marianne is the first one to abandon herself to her new home? Or is this just a fact of her character that this romantic character of sensibilities is the first one to find not only to find a new romance, but to allow herself to be swept away from everything that she's known in order to seize the moment, we'll say. Anyways, back to our current chapter. Eleanor's happiness was not so great. Her heart was not so much at ease, nor her satisfaction in their amusement so pure. They afforded her no companion that could make amends for what she had left behind, nor that could teach her to think of Norland with less regret than ever. Neither Lady Middleton nor Mrs. Jennings could supply to her the conversation she missed, although the latter was an everlasting talker, and from the first had regarded her with a kindness which ensured her a large share of her discourse. She had already repeated her own history to Eleanor three or four times, and had Eleanor's memory been equal to her means of improvement, she might have known very early in their acquaintance 
all the particulars of Mr. Jennings' last illness and what he had said to his wife a few minutes before he died. Lady Middleton was more agreeable than her mother, only in being more silent. Eleanor needed little observation to perceive that her reserve was a mere calmness of manner with which sense had nothing to do. And skipping a bit, her insipidity was invariable, for even her spirits were always the same, and though she did not oppose the parties arranged by her husband, provided everything was conducted in style and that her two eldest children attended her, she never appeared to receive more enjoyment from them than she might have experienced in sitting at home. And so little did her presence add to the pleasure of the others, by any share in their conversation, that they were sometimes only reminded of her being amongst them by her solicitude about her troublesome boys. So not only does Eleanor have no one to talk to, the people that she's around are absolutely insipid. They either talk about the same thing repeatedly, but never actually say anything worth discussion, or they just sit there like lumps and they don't talk at all. So Lady Middleton is one of those mothers in Austin who is completely passive. She has no interest in anything that's going on. Well, she might not be as passive as, say, Lady Bertram from Mansfield Park, but she's she's up there. This book has a really strongly opinionated narrative voice. I think it's in this chapter that it's really beginning to come out. Usually it, it's an omniscient voice. Um... But I think here the narrator is really beginning to side with Eleanor more than in the previous chapters. Rather than just reporting what is going on, I think it's here that the narrator is really starting to side with Eleanor in her opinions. Eleanor doesn't like Lady Middleton or Mrs. Jennings. She's far too well-bred and polite and sensible to say anything that might offend them, but she really finds them to both be just insipid. But the one person that she does bond with is Colonel Brandon. And maybe it's because they're both very restrained people. But even to her, his crush on Marianne is blatantly obvious. In Colonel Brandon alone, of all her new acquaintance, did Eleanor find a person who could in any degree claim their respective abilities excite the interest of friendship, or give pleasure as a companion. In conversing with Eleanor, he found the greatest consolation for the indifference of her sister. Eleanor's compassion for him increased, as she had reason to suspect that the misery of disappointed love had already been known to him. This suspicion was given by some words which accidentally dropped from him one evening at the park when they were sitting down together by mutual consent while the others were dancing. So Eleanor only has interest in talking to Brandon, but she won't, not without being rude, talk to him about his past or why he seems so melancholy. But she does come up with some ideas about why he might be like this, and she adds to her theories one night when they're both at the Middletons' home. His eyes were fixed on Marianne, and after a silence of some minutes, he said with a faint smile, Your sister, I understand, does not approve of second attachments. No, replied Eleanor, her opinions are all romantic. Or rather, as I believe, she considers them impossible to exist. I believe she does, 
but how she contrives it without reflecting on the character of her own father, who had himself two wives, I know not. A few years, however, will settle her opinions on the reasonable basis of common sense and observation, and then they may be more easily to define and to justify than they are now by anybody but herself. This will probably be the case, he replied, and yet there is something so amiable in the prejudices of a young mind that one is sorry to see them give way to the receptions of more general opinions. I cannot agree with you there, said Eleanor. There are inconveniences attending such feelings as Marianne's, which all the charms of enthusiasm and ignorance of the world cannot atone for. Her systems have all the unfortunate tendencies of setting a propriety at naught, and a better acquaintance with the world is what I look forward to as her greatest possible advantage. So Eleanor is really looking forward to Marianne becoming a little bit more jaded, we'll say. Marianne growing up, growing out of her idealistic youth and becoming more settled, more conservative in her opinions, and maybe a little bit less enthusiastic, we'll say. But one of the things Eleanor sees as a problem with Marianne's ideals of sensibility is that Marianne herself would not have been born if her father had only had one wife. Their mother, Mrs. D, is a second wife, and that's why they were kicked out of Norland, and that's why they had to move. So maybe Marianne is in part basing her opinions on personal experience. If it's one of those, if my father had never married my mother, this would have never happened to us. Well, obviously, Marianne, because you wouldn't have been born. This is just one of the inconsistencies in her belief system. And it seems to be one of the things Brandon likes about her. He likes this idealistic youth. And he seems to be saying this about young people in general. But it also might be saying something about his past. This is the type of person he's been attracted to in the past. And Brandon can't drop his line of questioning. Does your sister make no distinction in her objections against a second attachment, or is it equally criminal in everybody? Are those who have been disappointed in their first chance, whether from the inconstancy of its object or the perverseness of circumstances, to be equally indifferent during the rest of their lives? Upon my word, I am not acquainted with the minutiae of her principles. I only know that I never yet heard her admit any instance of a second attachment's being pardonable. This, he said, cannot hold, but a change, a total change of sentiments. No, no, do not desire it, for when the romantic refinements of a young mind are obliged to give way, how frequently are they succeeded by such opinions as are but too common and too dangerous. I speak from experience. I once knew a lady who in temper and mind greatly resembled your sister, who thought and judged like her, but who from an enforced change, from a series of unfortunate circumstances, here he stopped suddenly, appeared to think that he had said too much, and by his countenance gave rise to conjectures which might not otherwise have entered Eleanor's head. The lady would probably have passed without suspicion had he not convinced Miss Dashwood that what concerned her ought not to escape his lips. 
As it was, it required but a slight effort at fancy to connect his emotion with the tender recollections of past regard. Eleanor attempted no more. But Marianne in her place would not have done so little. The whole story would have been speedily formed under her active imagination and everything established in the most melancholy order of disastrous love. Now, going back to about the middle, Brandon almost loses himself in the past here, and he has to catch himself before he says too much. For a man who has played his hand very close to the vest, he's starting to show too many of his cards. So what do we know? We know that there was an idealistic, romantic young person who Brandon thinks was a lot like Marianne. And this person was forced to do something that changed her and led her into danger or a dangerous situation. Now, if you've read Sense and Sensibility before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you're new to the novel, we'll keep most of that under wraps for now. Of course, the narrator sides with Eleanor, whose complete lack of imagination and stolid sensibleness let her think about the terrible things that could have happened in Brandon's past for him to say this now. However, both the narrator and Eleanor know that Marianne would be writing the next great novel of sensibilities about this poor person. Now, this is an interesting idea because this vague story really is the outline for a novel of sensibilities. And I don't want to spoil this mystery woman's story for anyone who hasn't read the novel yet. So instead, let's take a minute to talk about Colonel Brandon. I have been waiting since like episode seven to do this. And I really want to dig into Jane's possible sources for his character. So there will be a couple spoiler alerts here. If you've never read Sense and Sensibility, you may want to skip this part, but I really think it's worth digging into. We've talked about Pamela by Samuel Richardson before as a possible inspiration for not only the book, but for Marianne. But Jane may also have gotten inspiration for Brandon from that book. Colonel Brandon may have been named after Mr. B of Brandon Hall from Pamela, and Mr. B was Pamela's employer who gets way too friendly with 15-year-old Pammy, and he's way creepier than Brandon has been. This is a guy who claims that he can't control himself, which is the lamest excuse of the past 300 years. And Mr. B ends up imprisoning Pamela on one of his estates, and then he tries to rape her. And remember, she's 15. So compared to this piece of work, our Brandon is a pretty nice guy. He doesn't even talk to Marianne. But there's also another potential source for Brandon. Apparently, Jane used someone who was much closer to home, although half a world away. Now, this idea comes from Linda Robinson Walker, who was a professor at the University of Michigan. And she says that Brandon is distinctly influenced by Warren Hastings, who was not only the first governor of India, he was also the godfather and possible father of Jane Austen's cousin, Eliza de Fulied. So the story goes, in 1753, Eliza's mother, Philadelphia Austen, who's George Austen's sister, traveled to India at age 22 in order to find her fortune 
Six months after arriving, she married a 29-year-old surgeon named Tysope Saul Hancock. The couple moved to Calcutta, and there they met Warren Hastings and his wife, Mary. In Calcutta, Phila, as she was known, gave birth to a baby girl they named Elizabeth, who was also named after the Hastings baby. Elizabeth later became known as Eliza, and after her birth, Hastings deposited 10,000 pounds in an account for Eliza. Years later, Eliza and her parents traveled back to England, where she became friends with her young Austin cousins, and told stories to them about India and about her godfather. Eliza married a French army captain named Jean-Francois Capote de Fulide, and gave birth to a baby boy she named Hastings. So this is a significant relationship in Jane's family, particularly after Eliza, who was made a widow by the guillotine in the French Revolution, married Jane's brother Henry. So Jane may have taken some of Hastings' life story and given it to Brandon. For one, they both went to India at 17 in the army. They both participate in duels and they both might have illegitimate daughters named Eliza. Now, there's a ton of other stuff about Brandon in Dr. Robinson Walker's essay, but also in other sources. And I want to get to that in a later time, but I think that this is a good place to start the discussion and also to end today's episode. But before I leave you today, if you love Jane Austen, or books in general, and can't be sated with just one podcast, you should take a listen to your favorite book podcast with Malavika Preseed. I got a chance to be Malavika's guest in January, and we got to talk about Pride and Prejudice. I hope that you'll listen to this episode. Malavika and I had a ton of fun recording it. We laughed so much. Um, it was just a blast talking with Malavika. You can listen to your favorite book wherever you get your podcasts. In our next episode, we'll read chapter 12 and learn how the most ideal plans can change when the mail comes. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to Ensign Sensibility. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Casey Meserve. You can listen to all my episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a review, leave, a, leave those stars on Apple Podcasts. They really help other people find the podcast, and they really help me too. You can write to me at endsandsensibility at gmail, and you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram at endsandsensibility. If you'd like to purchase any of the books recommended on the show, check out our bookshelf page on entsandsensibility.com. We also have show notes and tons of other stuff. Thank you again for listening to Ents and Sensibility. Have a lovely day and I hope you'll visit again soon.